am Jennifer Zeman, your host of the Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. Today, I'm continuing my interview with Besha Rodell. If you missed part one from last week, Besha is a critic and columnist for the New York Times Australia Bureau and restaurant critic for Tea Magazine Australia. Born and raised in Australia, she was a restaurant critic in the U.S. for over a decade in Atlanta and Los Angeles before returning to her hometown of Melbourne in 2017. She's a James Beard Award winner and acts as a solo global critic for Food & Wine magazine, traveling extensively to pick the annual 30 best restaurants in the world. She lives in Melbourne with her family, and like I mentioned, she's also a super close friend, which is why we went so long. There was just not much to cut. It's just fun to talk to your friend, but when your friend is also a fellow restaurant critic, the topics are never-ending. I hope you enjoy our conversation. How has it been eating in restaurants in Australia and then seeing where we're at here. It's bizarre because the rules there are so strict. And basically what happened there for people who haven't followed it is that we had a few COVID cases that turned into a pretty significant wave um, and the whole city was shut down for, um, it ended up being 111 days altogether with a with a space in between. The, and so nobody went outside for months and months and months. And what happened was like we went to zero cases. And so since November of last year, we had a very brief lockdown over Valentine's weekend in February because we had a couple of cases from November until about a month, month and a half ago. We had zero cases in in Victoria, the state that I live in. And so everything opened up and the guidelines were very clear. There were only a certain amount of people allowed in restaurants. You had to wear masks for a certain amount of time, all of that stuff. I found it very comforting to be in a country where the guidelines were so clear and were so concerned with making sure that nobody got it. Not that they kept the numbers to a certain amount, that it was gone, that by the time you walked out of your house and could go to the shops and could go do everything, you were very little risk. And they can't ever bring it to zero risk because they're allowing people back into the country who live there. Um, And all of our cases have come out of hotel quarantine. When you go back to Australia, you have to be in quarantine for two weeks in a hotel. But sometimes COVID escapes that quarantine. So that's what happens. But Melbourne is such a city built on its restaurants and bars and cafes and pubs. Almost all of The social life that happens in that city happens in those places. I mean, it's pretty hard, I think, to explain to an American audience exactly what the cafes and pubs of Melbourne are like, because there's nothing here like it. There just isn't. They are places where, especially the pubs, where you take your kids, where you meet your friends, where you would take your parents. They're multi-generational places. And so for for that city to be without it for so long was just really strange and sad. And to have it back was just like, it was amazing. Like everybody was just so thrilled, but it's been hard for me as a critic because it was, it wasn't like I could just start writing about those places again. It wasn't like you could stop or start Start because I'm writing for an international audience. 50% of the readers of my reviews in Australia are still writ by us readers. It's about uh, I think it's about 50% US, 40% Australian and 10% elsewhere. That That's kind of the breakdown that I understand it. So if you're in America and you are taking COVID really seriously and you're not going out and you're stuck in your house, you don't want to read me being like, hey, there's this good restaurant in Sydney. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? So everything that I've written about for the Times 
it really has to have an international perspective. What does this say about restaurant culture more broadly? What does it say about Australia culturally? So I've had to really pick and choose, like, what can I write about that will resonate with an audience that isn't in the same place that we are, you know? So that's what I've been focusing on, you know, on a personal level, it was incredible to be able to be out. And we had a summer while you guys were in winter that was basically COVID free. And that's our hot back summer now here. Yeah. In the US. But did the pandemic change the way you felt when you went into restaurants or like somebody I had probably in the first three episodes was like, people are forgetful. They're going to, you know, you're, you're back in. And, and recently I went and I ate and I sat and I was served and everything at a restaurant here that opened up called the Betty by one of Ford uh, Fry's protégés. And um, I was surprised how quickly I forgot about COVID during the meal. How about yourself? Again, I think it was just a different thing because I lived in a country where there were so many controls in place that by the time I was eating in restaurants again, there was like no chance that anybody there was going to have COVID. And so the stranger thing was coming here. So I live in Australia, but I'm in Atlanta right now. Um, I've been here for a couple of weeks and Australia's vaccine rollout has been real crap. And so (laughs) I was only able to get one vaccine on my way out of the country because they gave me an exemption to travel. They're also not letting people in or out of the country unless that you get an exemption. So I had to get that and that allowed me to get one vaccine. And so coming here was really bizarre for me because living in a country where they will lock down a city of 5 million people over 10 cases that they know where the cases came from, where they've been for the last 14 days. They have put up a list online of every place that that person visited. So, you know, if you have any chance of coming into contact with them, like going from that to getting on a crowded American Airlines flight, you know, with people who are kind of barely wearing their masks in me only being partially vaccinated and people just being so blasé about it. That was bizarre. And, you know, I am not eating anywhere. It's really sad for me to be in Atlanta and not eating anywhere because I miss Atlanta and there's so many things that have opened since I left. And I would love to be out there kind of doing all of that stuff, but there's no way. Like, I'm just, I'm too cautious. And, um, So this is my first taste, I think, of that real fear that everybody here has been living with for a year and a half almost, uh, um, an uncertainty. And just I have not been living with that. I've been stuck in my house a lot, (laughs) Um, you know, and. But I mean, you went to Sydney, you're at the closing of Momofuku Co. I mean, you're you're going out to restaurants, you're 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 living that life again. You know, another thing I wanted to just discuss with you, because, you know, post covid how do you do your job as a critic? I mean, in the United States, there's a lot of people who are just not going to get vaccinated. You know, the variants are going to be here forever. I, I really and I'm, I know science backs me up, think this is going to be like the flu and we're going to have to get a booster every year. For me, restaurants are forever changed. I don't know if the same criteria that we were using to evaluate them works anymore because hospitality is a contact sport, right? Sure. I mean, it's funny. At the New York Times, they have this thing that they do occasionally where they have basically calls between reporters that readers can listen in on. So I did one kind of in the middle of Melbourne lockdown. So probably almost a year ago with Sam Sifton, Pete Wells and Tejal Rao. So we're all staff writers all, for the New York yeah, Times. All, we, yeah. So Sam is the food editor and Pete is the New York critic. Tejal is the California critic. I'm the Australian critic. And that question came up about 
you know, how are we going to review restaurants going forward? What is it going to be like? And can you really look at it in the same way as you used to? And I think the answer from all of us is probably not. But the harder part is like, are you going to be criticizing these places that have come through this stuff that are struggling so much? Is it really fair to kind of put the same criteria on it? And I think both of them have kind of come a ways in their thinking since then, only because, you know, we were only just starting to think about it. But for me, even then, I felt very much like the job of a critic has always been to say, what do we want our cities to be like? What do we want to champion? And what do we not need? Like, what is holding back the culture or being detrimental to the food good culture. Yeah, <laughs> Good sure. critics yeah. lead the city. Yeah. yeah, you know, and that question is even more vital now because it would be so easy for all of the mom and pops to just be eradicated. It would be so easy for the big restaurant groups to come in and swoop in and, and take all of the business. So, yeah, absolutely. If I was living in the U.S., I would be talking and thinking about who is protecting their workers, who, you know, how is, how, what is the cleanliness level of the restaurant, all of that stuff. It's less of an issue in Australia, honestly, because again, once we're let out of our houses, there's no COVID. (laughs) If there's COVID, we're in our houses. So the criteria for reviewing changes in the U.S., but it's still there. I mean, back when I was a while ago, when I was the critic for Atlanta Magazine, my editor at the time, Julia Bainbridge, decided to kill restaurant reviews because she didn't think that restaurant criticism was was useful anymore. And I remember you at the time saying it is chefs deserve someone like you were talking about earlier that are really thinking about what they're doing and their intent. So you do believe even today that there is a place for criticism and that it's necessary. Oh, man, in a perfect world. There would be every major city would have three good critics and those jobs would exist and there would be a model that paid for them and all of that. Um, The world is definitely not perfect. And I really understand any publisher who looks at their bottom line and says, this is a really expensive thing we're doing. And it's basically a public service. And it's a weird public service because it's like about what's basically a luxury thing. And we don't have you know, dentist critics or <laughs> whatever. But it's so, art. This yeah. is art. I mean, I do totally. Think, yeah. yeah, no, and I, art I, needs criticism. I agree with yeah. that. And I would say that most chefs would really want to look. I was going to say most chefs really prefer to have a good critic in their city. Like when I went to L.A., Jonathan Gold had just moved to the L.A. Times. He famously never had a star rating system. I was sitting at Mozart with Amy Scattergood, who was the food editor at that point, and Walter Mansky, who is a really big deal chef who was in the process of opening his restaurant, came up to talk to Amy and he didn't know who I was and she didn't introduce me. And um, this was actually during my interview, I think. And he was talking about how Jonathan had just gone to the LA Times and had killed the star rating system there. And as much as he loved Jonathan's writing, he felt like it was really a thing that chefs aspired to that this, it's part of what pushed them forward was to have this, you know, to understand the critic and to understand what was going to get you to a certain place. And that can be detrimental too. like, if you have a critic that's been there for years and is out of touch with what people want and is giving stars based on what they want, that's a problem. But with or without stars, I think having really well-informed good critics in any city 
is really helpful to the chefs in that city. It's helpful to the consumers and the good ones push the food culture in a city in the right direction. And that has always been my intent. When I came to Atlanta, Atlanta didn't know what it wanted to be. And I'm not going to take any credit for helping the city figure that out. But I also think that I came in with a real like, this city is not Miami. It's not Las Vegas. All of the restaurants people are talking about are kind of trying to be those things. There has to be something that is authentically Atlanta that's happening here. And that's when places like Holman and Finch started showing up. And those are the places that I championed because I was like, this city has a real heart and soul that is not being reflected in the restaurants that people talk about here. So, but I don't think that the model works economically for many publications. And that is, again, something that needs to probably be torn down and and built back up. And I'm of the mind that like the people who benefit the most from um, lifestyle journalism should probably be the people who are paying for it. So like, you know, I pitched Australia tourism last year. Uh, I'm like, let me run a magazine. You pay for it. You don't decide what goes in it. (laughs) I I will have complete editorial independence and it will make people want to come to Australia because there's great stuff in Australia. Like, you know, those are the people who booze companies. I mean, Diageo has a lot of money. They want to grow their brand. They want to grow their sales. They need to grow the category. They should be paying for a Lucky Peach style, whatever. But they want to pay influencers instead. Yeah, and that's but that the doesn't other work. Thing. But I mean, the thing is, I mean, you see now on Insta, on Snapchat, on TikTok now, I mean, these restaurant reviews or, you know, lifestyle influencers. And it's like, let me tell you, Q, on this tour of this restaurant, it's like a 20 second bite. Like, do readers have the attention span anymore. Yeah. I think the diners that you want to come and who are going to be regulars, they absolutely do. And it was like I was saying, like Michelin stars, it's very difficult to tell the difference between what is a place that you should actually visit and what is a place that just hits all the marks of the, you know, fanciness um, and is boring or so expensive for what it is, or you could get it anywhere else at any other kind of restaurant like that. The same is true for, you know, the influencer crowd a lot of it is just based on who's going to give them a free meal. And smart people know that. And look, there's a lot of people who will follow those folks. But if you ask any restaurateur how much of that has actually translated into real people showing up, especially the type of people who are going to be repeat customers, I would say that it's negligible what those what those folks can do. I mean, now Yelp, TripAdvisor, those types of places, you know, good ratings on those do translate to real money for people. There's just no question about the opposite effect, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. So I can't speak as much to that, but I just the difference between cities with really good, strong critics and the ones who don't have them as much make all kinds of, you know, it makes a huge difference in ways that are both great and ways that suck. I mean, if you have a great critic that everybody respects, they're going to be asked to be on the James Beard Committee. The James Beard Committee has huge influence over, you know, obviously they give out the awards or they at least write the long list for the awards that everyone else votes on. That is a massive thing for any city. So, you know, again, I just think that eventually the place where the money comes from, either directly or indirectly, has to change. You know, when I launched Omnivore, which was the creative loafing food blog. And it was one of the first food blogs um, outside of kind of Frank Bruni's and Michael Bauer had one in San Francisco that were like critics blogs that they had one every day. For a publication. Yeah. Yeah. So 
we had, you know, outside of Eater and, you know, the, the big kind of ones, we were one of the first for a food section of a newspaper. Um, you know, I remember just begging the, the publisher and the sales folks to like, I'm just like, go approach open table. Like they should be the only sponsor or Whole Foods. Like they should just sponsor Omnivore. We don't have any other Google ads on it. People can make reservations directly from the blog. If we mention a restaurant, we're not going to mention it based on them wanting us to. They will have no influence, but they will be the only sponsor. And it never, you know, and this was, again, 15 years ago. I don't ago. think people understood how to monetize no, blogs. No, they didn't. At least publications didn't And, and blogs went away as a result. And yeah. it was a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. It really was. And now it's happening with podcasts, funnily <laughs> enough. It's like the blog of now, but people have figured out that there is a possibility to monetize it. And so people are thinking about it from that, from the get-go, which they didn't do with the blogs. And yeah, podcasts are actually a really good example that the people who benefit the most from an engaged audience are the people who are going to have to pay for the content. And that is the open tables, the Whole Foods, the tourism folks. You're listening to The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. I'm speaking with Besha Rodell. But a lot of people are taking the power back. A lot of journalists are. You see like Alicia Kennedy starting Substack, as you see. We were yeah, talking Hannah about Raskin the other just day. went to Substack. Yeah. Hannah Raskin, she won an award for that. She won a grant to actually start her yeah. Substack. She competed with a lot of people. But yeah, I do believe there might be a point of diminishing returns with oh, this absolutely. for readers, you know, yeah. for, for the end user. One of the reasons I'm doing a pod is because a network approached me and, and it does feel very much like blogging in that regard. But um, just to piggyback on the criticism conversation, as a restaurant critic myself, I was getting pretty fatigued before the pandemic started. I was, you know, I'm 45. I'm going to be 45. We're the same age. Sorry, I just blew up your spot. <laughs> but but uh, um, although 60, you're a few, she's lying. She's a few months older. <laughs> um, but part of the thing was that I stopped enjoying restaurants. And I don't know if that if it was the emotional toll of having to, like you said, deep dive into these places and and not having the ability to like roast myself a chicken, as I know you like to do as well for your fam. But I also started to feel like I was doing my body a disservice. Oh, absolutely. And you and I both have struggled with health and our weight and we're women and we're in our mid 40s. Can you talk about your relationship with food? And your relationship with food as a restaurant critic? Sure. Yeah. And your body. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so I basically started as a food writer right after I had a baby in my late 20s. And it kind of made it so that the weight that I had gained through pregnancy never went away. And I struggled with that for a really long time. And then you and I kind of had a similar journey where we both went to the same personal trainer. We were both working out at the same gym. Oh we both God. lost a lot of weight. It was um, Michael. Yes, Michael. Awesome. Yes. Um, and, you know, you were uh, gearing up to get married and I was going to be a bridesmaid. So that helped with the way that we looked in our pretty dresses. Um, but it also made it so that I'm not sure that I ever would have gotten as positive a relationship with exercise as I did because I had to, because I was just consuming so many calories through work. You know, that was more than 10 years ago now. And because I am a little older, you know, all of it changes. So I spend a lot of time now just trying to, um, because I, I exercise a ton. I swim, you know, 40 minutes to an hour every day. I 
walk everywhere in Melbourne. You don't have to really have a car there. I just am really, really working on understanding that as long as I'm healthy and I'm really exercising, that whatever kind of size I am is okay. And and I'm doing pretty well with that. But it's interesting because, you know, the pandemic made it so that I went home for six months, um, didn't travel, didn't eat. And I learned a lot of things through that. I mean, I ate, but not out at restaurants. Um, I learned that I was way happier being at home all the time, which is so funny because my dream, and especially my dream when I moved to Australia from LA was I was going to end up with this kind of international life where I was working for an American newspaper, living in Australia. Um, I took on this food and wine gig, so I was traveling a lot. Um, I was going to be back in the US a couple times a year for work and other reasons. Um, and then in Australia, my gig is national in scope. So I, you know, when I started, I was writing a column every two months and only one of out of about six could be about Melbourne. So, you know, I was on the road constantly, almost never, you know, I was never home. And then I got the food and wine gig and was leaving home for four months out of the year, literally just coming home to sleep for a couple of days and then getting on a plane again. And that was really, really hard on me. And I think that, you know, I think that when Bourdain died, it was a wake up call for a lot of us, but especially those of us who travel for a living, eat for a living, and have everyone think that like your life is this amazing, magical thing that they all want to do. And the most interesting thing to me about Bourdain is how much we all wanted to be him. And that's a really hard position to be in when everybody thinks that you have this amazing, perfect fantasy life, but you still feel like shit. Like that's not, you know what I mean? Like you, you can't say that to anyone. People come up and go, oh, you've got the most amazing their, like, whole yeah. dream and fantasy. Yeah, and like also, you're like, oh my God, you're a restaurant. I know. <gasps> it's my dream job. Uh, I, the, the funny story. So you were witness to this, but so the first year that I did the world's 30 best restaurants, um, the first trip that I went on, I basically flew from uh, Melbourne to San Francisco, got off the plane, went out to dinner, went to sleep, got in a rental car, drove somewhere, you know, never, I never stopped. And I got really sick about, it wasn't even that long into it. I want to say a week into it. I was in Mexico city and I was on a plane every day. I was in a different country, a different city. I went from Mexico city to Canada. It was snowing there. It was hot in Mexico city. Anyway, I got really sick. Um, and I couldn't pause to get to a doctor because, you know, I tried in Canada and they were like, you can't get to a doctor here. It's hard for us to get to a doctor. You know, it was weird. And I finally got to New York City and I slept for two days and I felt okay. And then I went to North Carolina, got off the plane, drove to a barbecue place, drove back to <laughs> Raleigh, slept, got on a plane, went to Charleston and um, woke up the next day in Charleston really sick. And I was with my friend Debbie and she drove me to Atlanta and I was staying with you. And I woke up the next morning with 105 degree fever and took myself to Piedmont Hospital. <laughs> um, and, you know, I had the flu. I just had the flu, but I had a really bad flu that I hadn't been able to rest for long enough to get over. And so it had I've never seen you that sick. It was I've never been that sick. It was insane. But I was in the hospital room, 105 degree fever that full of like fluids and they couldn't get my fever down. And they were like, you need to be worried about sepsis and all of this stuff. And this nurse comes in, not a nurse who was treating me with a pad and a pen and is like. So you're a restaurant critic. Tell me how I do that. And I was just like, I'm dying. <laughs> I'm literally 
dying because of my job. Like, what do you want me to say to you? Like, oh, I'm going to give you the formula right now. And she was like, you know, she was like, I don't, I'm a nurse, but I don't care about nursing. Like my real passion is for food. And I was just like, okay, lady, like, I don't know what, I can barely talk. Like, I don't know what to say to you, but like that happens. And are you going to tell that woman? Like, I miss my kid. Like, I would just like to go eat beans and rice with my kid. It seems really ungrateful for what we all know is like an amazing thing. And I, you know, I joke and I'm like, well, it's better than working for a living, which I completely think is true. But if a pandemic taught me anything, it's that like I need to prioritize um, having a schedule and being home and knowing when I'm going to be traveling and having my family know when I'm going to be traveling and minimizing it, honestly. I mean, I'm not giving up any of my gigs and God willing, you know, the world will be normal again, that maybe food and wine will want to do 30 best again. But I think that I would have to really do it on more of a rolling thing than like all at once. Or, you know, I just, I have to prioritize being at home and getting to the pool to swim every day and eating well you know, at least four days out of the week because it wreaks havoc on your body to be and eating. And your mental health. Yes. I mean, I find my mental health suffers if I don't exercise. Oh, totally. Um, Or if I eat like shit for an extended period of time. And I think that's, you know, that's also part of the journey. Like you said, I'm also on the same tip, which is interesting. So we haven't, we hadn't compared notes really up until seeing each other this time. But, you know, I'm, I'm done kind of trying to reduce my weight. I would like to just, you know, eat food and I got some really great advice. And instead of trying to take things away, add things. So I've been adding more exercise, adding, you know, better choices. Yeah. And I think it makes a difference. I mean, I eat really well when I'm at home. Honestly, my husband is the one. (laughs) He's somebody who's like, if I make you know, chickpeas for dinner. He's like, where's the meat? Where's the, most you know, are, you know, where's like the whatever? Like, um, and he cooks most nights because he works days now. And, you know, he wants to cook like a, a fabulous thing almost every time. But, you know, when I'm cooking for myself and even most of the time that he cooks, you know, I eat well when I'm at home. I, and like I said, I walk everywhere. I feel I feel good about my health in a way that I haven't again in 15 years. And that round the world thing was just, you know, I was eating tasting menus almost every night and then going out for lunch at these kind of crazy places, more kind of like, you know, local spots during the day. But you still, because I was by myself, it wasn't like I could just be like, I'll have one bowl of pasta. Like I had to get like all kinds of stuff. And, you know, I I made myself really sick like a, a number of times. And I'm almost allergic to like meat fat at this point because of a assignment I had in LA to go taste all of the foie gras dishes right before the, I know right before they banned foie gras, they were like, go eat all the foie in town and say what people should go eat. And I was standing at the counter at animal trying to eat their foie gras loco moco. And like my head, I just got so hot. And my, I was like, I'm going to pass out. And I had to go sit in the bathroom with my head in my hands for like 20 minutes and ever since then, like, you know, I can't eat more than like a bite of pork belly. Like I would but get even hot a bite, and like my family, like Momofuku Ko became our like go to special occasion spot in New York. And we would go. But like we were all un- like we would all reach a point like about 60 percent through. We just know we could not put any more food because you s- I, my sister and I kind of hit on it. it's like when you have 
too much stimulation for your body too with that fat, with that sugar, with everything. It can be overwhelming. So I'm not surprised after eating yeah. foie gras loco no. that you were like done. And it's funny. I mean, that's one of the things that you have to be careful of as a critic. Certainly for me, like my favorite tasting menu restaurants are the ones where you leave feeling full, but not horrible. And that's changed for me. When Ryan and I, we got married on the coast of North Carolina and we had like a two day honeymoon because we already had a kid. And so we could only, and he was like one and we could only go for like a night or two. And so we went to Charleston and I remember we sat and like ate at every single restaurant we wanted to go to in Charleston, just at the bar and just got like two things. But I swear we went to like six places and we used to have fun doing that. And he would still have fun doing that. And I'm like, hell no. That's, I don't have the stamina oh, for that. God. I mean, you remember when I'd go travel and I'd in Tokyo or something and I was, you know, hitting all the things I felt like I quote unquote should I guess I don't have a lot of that should anymore. I don't really care. While I think it would be really lovely to eat at Bluestone, I feel like if I don't eat there, then I'm going to be missing out on something. Or if I don't eat at Noma, then I'm missing out on something. Because I think, as you can probably attest, I've always been into the more, I don't want to say high and low, because I think that's, you know, deprecating the more immigrant-led cuisine. Sure. And I guess that's why it's so interesting to watch you go eat all of this super fancy food yeah. because it's not something like when I go on trips like people are like did you go there and oh, I'm like, I know no, I just it's did so it funny I I, I, I don't want to go where everyone goes well it's you know when we were living in LA um, we took like our first international family holiday that wasn't to Australia to see my family we went to Paris and at the time my brother was dating a restaurant critic in Australia and they met us they were in london for a, a wedding and they came to paris for a couple of days and she was very much like did you go here did you go here did you go here and i was like bitch i'm on holiday <laughs> i'm eating falafel on the street i'm off the clock yeah, like i just was like yeah i mean sure lots of picnics right? yes oh, god the, there's so much picnic. cheese i love a picnic and we yeah we were getting cheese that we were eating really well but like it was about us wandering around and discovering the city, not like ticking boxes of all the trendy places that we wanted to go, which to me feels like work. And look, I have critic friends who love that. They get pleasure out of it. I'm not knocking it. It's funny because when Bill Addison was the national critic for Eater, I would sometimes meet him places. Um, well, and, and he is one of those people who can have like four din dinners, like in a row, back to back to back. I don't know how he does it. He looks good that boston and his yeah, amazing like metabolism i hate him but but not only that you know he just doesn't get sick of it and so we learned pretty early on that like he could do the eating and i could do the drinking with like <laughs> jack spratt and his wife so we would drive he would drive and i would eat the first meal and then he would keep eating and i would just have all the cocktails from then on out because i do if i have a if i have a hollow leg it's for cocktails but whiskey um, yes but i yeah i don't i don't enjoy eating that way and i don't think that there are many regular people who eat that way and so that kind of competition and there is a thing there's an ego thing with some food writers about oh, like it's all of the things ego. i can eat like all of the how gluttonous can i be and i'm just like ugh. and it's just it's not that interesting to me that's what i used to be such a glutton and it was funny because i went by blissful glutton and my ex-husband used to always say but you're not very happy yeah, <laughs> it was like a, it was a lot of the sad glutton. It was it was a sad, <laughs> glutton. But it was a lot of work. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know where we go from that. So, just in terms of actual food, though, 
like one of the things I always loved about you is that you say your favorite food is spicy glop. Yes. So what is your comfort food? What is what if you had to choose your last meal on this earth, what would it be? Um, I've thought about that a lot and it changes. Look, I really love like the big kind of Thanksgiving style. You know, I love a roast chicken like that is probably my my main comfort food. We eat, we eat a roast chicken at home when I'm home at least once a week, if not more. And there's all kinds of versions of it. There's the summer version. I make like a schmaltz panzanella where I roast the chicken over the croutons. So it like gets all schmaltzy and then make a panzanella out of it. I make gravy. I love to make gravy. I make stuffing. I love stuffing. So it would probably be like my stuffing and cream spinach and gravy. And um, Ryan makes this um, rutabaga and cheese thing out of what a one of Otto Lange's books that's like so amazing. But there's also part of me that's like, you know, my mother makes this crazy chicken soup that is like the comfort if you're sick kind of thing. And yeah, there's a lot of spicy glop in my life that I love. I mean, I, you know, just rice and beans. We eat a lot of tofu stew that, you know, with kimchi, like, I don't know. It's really hard for me to, to choose. I think about like, I cook the same things over and over again. I don't spend a lot of time in recipe books, like figuring out new things to cook. So I make my mother's chicken livers a lot. I love that. That's probably the thing that like, that's probably the most comforting thing is these crazy chicken livers that my mother makes, which are basically just with white wine and lemon juice and a ton of parsley and cumin and a little soy sauce. And you eat it with rice and yogurt. And it's so good. Interesting. Yeah. Cumin. Yeah, you toast the cumin in oil and then put the chicken livers on top and then put all the stuff in. And it's, and you, you know, you cook them real pink and you eat it with rice and yogurt and broccoli or salad. And it's so good. Also, like when I'm sick, I want like Velveeta shells and cheese with a bunch of like sambal olic <laughs> in it. Like that's, I don't want like, I don't know or why. Or lemon chicken and rice. I know lemon that, chicken and rice. I know your husband's uh, been trying to perfect that dish yeah, for no, you. Yeah, no, and he has. It's funny because my mother used to cook it when I was a kid and it was kind of like my comfort. Like, But it was also kind of fancy because, again, we were pretty broke most of the time, like to the point where like enough boneless chicken for a family was a ton of money and we didn't. It was like a birthday meal. And Ryan makes it now and he makes it so different. But I just, I mean, any kind of hand-cooked chicken with a ton of lemon juice is just he's a very good chef so what is next in the pipeline for you what are you going to be doing i mean obviously you're on a different timeline because of australia but you did mention perhaps you might reassume that global critic role i don't know what where um food and wine and or travel and leisure is going to be coming out of all of this obviously i think food and wine is doing very well Travel and Leisure is doing an amazing job of kind of keeping it together in a world where travel is almost impossible. Um, But, you know, that brand, I think, has been hit pretty hard. And this was an insanely expensive project. I mean, sending one person all over the world um, for months on end, you know, very, very expensive. So who knows if they're going to want to do it again. It would be nice if they did. I would probably be tempted to do it um, again if they did. I'm continuing my work with the New York Times and the bureau there is really tiny. So it's this interesting thing where it's almost more like a a weekly feel (laughs) in a with the New York Times kind of, you know, above you, which is really nice because there's all the resources of the New York Times. But it has that scrappy thing where I can pitch almost any story and if they like it, they'll take it. And so I've been doing a lot of work that is not food related. I wrote a story about the 
tiny penguins in Victoria, like, <laughs> and how they like got rid of a whole suburb so the tiny penguins could thrive, which was super fun. And then I wrote a story about this public housing lockdown that happened in Melbourne that was really upsetting. Um, that I'm very proud of. And they have a newsletter that goes out once a week that I write quite often. That's just the Australia letter about what's happening in Australia for people who are interested in that. And that's really fun too, because it, it's almost like doing a blog, but an Australia blog as opposed and to for the you know, New York Times. <laughs> yeah, totally. So that's really nice. And I hope to kind of maintain that gig and that relationship as long as possible. And it's a nice place because I'm part of the Australia Bureau, but I'm also part of the food desk. So that's my main thing and will continue to be. I'm also working on a book, which let's not talk about that. Um, (laughs) And I am working on a project for a kind of design firm that um, is going to be a website for the hospitality industry. And so I'm doing um, the editorial branch of that. Again, it's paid for by booze money, so I'm not going to say exactly what yet, but they've basically said, you know, uh, commission good writers to write things about the hospitality industry that will be interesting and good and helpful and, again, push our communities forward and towards a better future. And, and, and it's smart of them because, again, they, they recognize that if you grow the, if you grow the category, um, sales will follow and you don't necessarily have everything doesn't have to be marketing. You can say, what does this industry need to succeed? And let's do that. And then, you know, we'll have more customers. So I hope that that becomes more of a, I hope it's successful so that it becomes more of a model that other people will do. And do you have anything else to plug and how can people find you where social anything? Um, yeah. So I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Besha Rodell. And yeah, I have an author page on the New York Times, which you can get all of my stuff. Honestly, like sign up for the Australia newsletter. It's really cool whether or not you think you care about Australia. Um, uh, And I'm, you know, at least once a month I'm writing that newsletter and it's kind of personal dispatches from from my life there and the things, you know, again, it's more like a blog. It's more like an old school blog, which I really have been enjoying getting back into. So that's really fun. And yeah, there's there's a bunch of stuff to come. Well, thank you for being here. It's so nice to do this in person, too. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Besha. That's this week's episode. Thanks for joining me, and thank you to Besha for taking time to speak with us about her story. You can follow her as Besha Rodell on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to keep up with me on social media, you'll find me as Jennifer Zeman or The Food That Binds on Instagram and Twitter. Please don't forget to rate and review because it helps other people find me. Next week, I'm joined by Erica Council. Erica is a charismatic food writer and recipe developer whose work has been featured in the New York Times, Savour, and Food & Wine magazine, just to name a few. Although she wears so many hats, it's her biscuits that have made Erica a fixture in the Southern culinary world. Bomb Biscuit Company, which is based out of Atlanta, sells jams, all sorts of biscuits, and cinnamon rolls, which are then delivered to your door, and now you can have them shipped nationally. Uh, Erica is just really one of my favorite people to talk to about food, restaurants, and so much more. And I think you'll really enjoy listening to her speak. Again, we're back Wednesday. Until then, I'm Jennifer Zeman, and you've been listening to The Food That Binds on the Adrian Dine Podcast Network.